Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Invisalign and Disalizing Appliances, an Efficient and Effective Combination to Treat Class II Malocclusions. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Clark Colville. Dr. Colville earned a certificate and master's degree from the University of Texas Houston Dental Orthodontic Program in 1993, and he maintains a private practice in Seguin, Texas. He became an Invisalign provider in December of 1998 and was involved in the first clinical trials as an Alpha Group member. He is currently on the Invisalign Speakers Bureau, Clinical Advisory Board, and continues in ongoing clinical research. He's an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Orthodontics at UT Houston, and Dr. Colville also serves on the AAO Council of Membership, Ethics, and Judicial Concerns, is the secretary-treasurer of the Southwestern Society of Orthodontics, and is the past president of the Texas Association of Orthodontists. So without further ado, I'll turn over the program over to Dr. Colville. Dr. Colville, you're now to the floor. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate everyone taking time out of their Friday morning to join us on the uh, webinar program today. And I will go ahead and get started. As Dave mentioned earlier, we're talking about distalizing appliance and Invisalign. And more specifically, we're going to focus on the uh, carrier distalizer. Um, the disclaimer that you're reading right now is provided by Invisalign and goes with uh, any program that they produce. The next disclaimer, of course, is the one that, that I'm providing, and uh, I go through this to let everyone know not everything you hear today is going to be strictly by the book for Invisalign. There will be things that uh, you might pick up on that are slightly um, off the prescribed Invisalign uh, procedures, and if you elect to do any of that, please know that you're doing it at your own risk uh, because these are my recommendations and these are not Align Technologies recommendations for anything that you're hearing today. I'd like to start out by focusing a little bit on, on clear aligner treatment and where it positions itself in our practices. And uh, for most people, as we go in, uh, what we're asked to do when we walk into an exam room is very quickly diagnose uh, the etiology of the problems that are presented to us for a patient, often a, a juvenile patient with an adult in the room, and we have to determine very quickly what the scope of the problem is. Is it more dental, more skeletal? If we're looking at somebody that is class two in the dental relationship, is the class two more a problem of skeletal problems? Is it more dental problems? And somewhere you have to divide up in your mind what are the things that you like to do in your practice in terms of uh, using clear aligners, you know, where do, where do aligners fit in into those group of things? And so what I'm showing you on the screen is, is a representation of how I divide these things up very quickly when I look in. And the one thing that, that I look at is for aligner treatment, it certainly is a dental tooth-moving appliance. It's not a skeletal correction appliance. So the more severe class twos are not something that I would look at using aligners only. And predominantly, what I like to use clear aligners to correct are very minor corrections uh, from class one to a very mild class two, where we're looking at, in terms of the molar relationship that we want to correct, a pretty small amount of correction AP. And when I talk about molar correction, I want to make sure that, that everyone understands I'm talking about the movement between the upper and lower first molars. I'm not talking about just pure distalization only, but, but how much movement between the two molars can we expect by either in the lower arch closing spaces, also potentially having some growth in teen patients would help us correct this class one. But 
I look at clear aligners as, as largely a dental appliance, and the things that it does very well are correcting, you know, anything from solid class one to your mild molar corrections up to, say, two millimeters. And this would be kind of anywhere from solid class one up to, you know, just short of end on. And the mechanism by which that is done is typically through having a distal molar rotation of the upper first molar, using elastics between the two arches, and then augmenting that with IPR. Those are things that I'm very comfortable with. However, the second group of patients are the group that present themselves quite often in our practice, and that is, you know, once I get beyond that minor amount of correction, I default pretty quickly to using distalizing appliances. Uh, it's been in my background to uh, make and use a lot of appliances in my practice. It's where my comfort zone is. Um, the reasons for that is largely because I'm trying to uh, establish a class one molar relationship in, and cuspid relationship very early on in treatment, essentially taking the most difficult problem that the case presents and treating that first. So whether it's fixed appliances, Invisalign, or anything else, what I've traditionally done is go to a distalizing appliance to gain that class one platform early on in treatment as quickly as I can so that I can then move on and treat the case from that point as a class one minor crowding case or a class one minor spacing case. Uh, but generally when we're using these distalizing appliances, the goal is develop the class one relationship and typically we're doing it by distalization of the upper dentition. Um, I've had a history of using a number of different appliances and all of these have their pluses and minuses, but I typically found going from top to bottom that I found uh, more minuses than there were pluses, generally in terms of efficiency, not so much in terms of effectiveness, because I think every one of these can be effectively used, uh, but are they efficient? Does it help us be productive in our practices? Those always led me to looking at other things. I'm not going to dwell on all of these today. I'm going to look at uh, a couple of them specifically, and those are aligners and the carrier distalizer because certainly some of the cases I'll show you today uh, could be handled probably with aligners only for people who want to be a little more aggressive and just wear the aligners and a lot of class two elastics throughout the treatment. Um, but I'm gonna make the point that I think it's very effective and efficient to combine treatment using the carrier distalizer. Uh, starting out looking at aligners only, this is a, a case that I did very early on, somewhere around 2005, where I was wanting to correct a mild uh, class two that was mild class two skeletal, mild class two dental kind of end on. And as you can see on the screen, the plan was to segmentally distalize the teeth, starting with the molars, then going to the bicuspids, then working up to the cuspids, and then to the anterior teeth. Uh, the advantages of the aligners are very good vertical control with little molar tipping. Uh, the negatives are that it was a pretty lengthy treatment. What you're seeing displayed on the screen is 57 aligners from start to finish. It took actually 27 aligners before the front teeth were ever being moved. And that, of course, is the patient's chief complaint when they present to your office is my front teeth are crooked. Um, so the other thing that had to be done here is when you see on a screen where it shows the upper molars moving back, then the bicuspids, then the cuspids, then the anterior teeth, the only way this is really happening in actuality is if you wear class two elastics concurrent with this entire treatment from the point the bicuspids start moving back. So to be effective, 
you have to have a patient that will not only wear their aligners, but they also have to be very good at wearing the class two elastics throughout. Because if you just deliver a series of aligners looking at this and the patient does not wear the class two elastics, then what you're going to end up with is, is an arch that's completely straightened, but from the anchorage considerations, you're not going to have done any distalization. The molars will move back. Then as that space between the molars and premolars gets smaller, that's an equal and opposite pressure pulling the molars right back forward. So you have to use a lot of class two elastics with this from the get-go. So my bottom, my final analysis on this was, yes, it's very effective, not terribly efficient because of the number of aligners that need to be used. Uh, can it be done and is it effective? Um, absolutely. This is a screenshot from the ClinCheck that shows where we should have been when the molars and premolars have been distalized, and we're just starting to move the custards back. And let's overlay that with a clinical photo of where the patient actually presented. And you can see that, that yes, the aligners are very effective in gaining the movement uh, distalizing. When we look at it from the buccal side, you can see we were wearing class two elastics directly to the teeth at that time. This was clearly before the precision cuts were, were available in the aligners. And you can see that we've gone to from an end-on relationship to a slightly overcorrected class one. The bicuspids are in a good position. And on a high angle patient, to create a little bit of a posterior open bite is one of the advantages of using aligners in this case. Well, when we get to the end, what, it, what we really find out is that we have done some distalization. The amount of distalization is probably one and a half to two millimeters, which is not an incredible amount of distalization, but it was enough to do the case in this particular instance. Uh, however, when you look at what we had to do clinically to do that with 75 aligners in the upper arch, 56 aligners in the lower arch, 36 total patient visits, um, this is not a, an effective combination in terms of practice productivity is to have a whole group of patients like this. Uh, 36 office visits over the span of two and a half to three years is way too many visits to be productive or something that you want to do. So does it work? Yes. Is it the most efficient way to do this? No. So again, I would began looking at other appliances, trying to figure out what is the most effective way to do this. Uh, looking at the cephalometric analysis of where we ended up on that patient, we see what really corrected the class two was a combination of two things. We had one very good vertical control of the molars, uh, which allowed some auto-rotation of the mandible. At the same time, we had growth of the mandible, which is displayed in the condyle. So in effect, while we look at the ClinCheck and we see a whole lot of distalization happening, uh, when we look at it and measure it on the SAF, it's a small amount of distalization that's occurred um, and summing it up, I think it was a combination of the molar rotation and distalization that caused us to see the distalization that we see on the SAF. Uh, and ultimately, the two main things that caused us to correct our class two was the vertical control along with the mandibular growth. Had this 15-year-old girl not had a little bit of mandibular growth, uh, we might not have seen the full class two correction that was displayed in the final result. How would we stage this today? I'm not going to say that this certainly isn't done today because we still have these very minor class twos uh, that need to be corrected if at all possible. Here we have a growing, uh, non-growing patient, I'm sorry, 27-year-old female that is non-growing, presents with an excess overjet you can see on your lower left-hand part of the screen, and that is the patient's chief complaint. She had been treated previously as a teenager 
and this is where she's relapsed. So knowing that we're probably not going to have any growth to help us, um, and I know that we can correct the class to a very small amount by wearing the aligners and the elastics, we add IPR to the upper arch at almost every space available. But on top of that, we do the clean check differently so that all the teeth are moving at the same time. This addresses the effectiveness of the aligners, the efficiency, and the effectiveness. So you can see on the lower right-hand screen, posterior IPR is done first, and that's followed by anterior IPR. Plastoelastics are worn simultaneously throughout this type of treatment. When we look at the final result here, we see that the molar relationship has been corrected about what we would expect from the aligners. We get a, a very small amount of molar distalization, partly because of the rotation of the molars. We've gotten the patient wearing class two elastics throughout treatment. We do it with 25 aligners upper and lower. That was actually 18 initial aligners and seven case refinement aligners. But we've done it much more efficiently in a total of eight office visits. So comparing these two, what I'm trying to point out is there's certainly two ways you can set these up in your ClinChecks. You can set one way up of doing it with segmental movement of teeth. You can set up another way of doing it where there's simultaneous tooth movement. I think I've shown that they're both effective ways of doing this. I think there's a wide disparity in the efficiency of doing it these two ways. And I certainly today, when I'm doing this type of treatment, plan on simultaneous tooth movement and doing this all at once. Has, has anybody else shown different, different amounts of molar distalization is a question that I wondered because when I looked at it, I, I, I still see that aligners are very effective for small amounts of distalization, but not anything that would be half-step or full-step class twos. And I think the other uh, clinician that has shared a lot of his results is Dr. Dar out of Vancouver. And in 2008, he did a presentation at the Invisalign Summit where he reviewed six patients that were treated with segmental tooth movement, although he had more teeth moving at one time, but they did move segmentally distally. And they did a cephalometric analysis, and from that analysis measured a constructed vertical line uh, off of a constructed Frankfurt horizontal and measured the distal of the upper second molars, the amount of distalization. And what we can see is an average of 1.78 millimeters and 39 aligners on average. Um, if you take the outlier out, which is the last patient, which was significantly different in number of aligners, but also in the amount of distalization, you can see we still fall down around the 1.5, 1.5 millimeters of distalization with a, with a reasonable number of aligners. So again, this supports kind of the data that I have seen in my practice that aligners alone by themselves are effective for small changes AP, one and a half to two millimeters, I think, is what we can plan on seeing out of the aligners. So that being the case, we still have a large number of patients that are coming to us wanting Invisalign treatment that might need a slight bit more correction than just you know, zero to two millimeters in the AP direction. And so for those patients, I want something that is very effective and also efficient. And I started using the carrier distalizer in 2004 when it first became available in the U.S. market. And uh, the carrier distalizer has proven to be fantastic in terms of both efficiency and effectiveness. Uh, you can see Dr. Carrier on the screen who is a mechanical engineer, and, and the design of this is fantastic for somebody who I... As a mechanical engineer, usually things are very difficult and, and hard to use. This is 
elegance probably because of its simplicity. When you look at the carrier distalizer itself, the key feature of this is the ball and socket design on the portion that bonds to the molar. And when you look at the right hand of your screen, you can see that this allows a freedom of movement not only in the buccal lingual direction, but also in the vertical direction. And what that does is it allows the, the molars to rotate and tip back uh, a little bit as they're being distally driven, and it doesn't try to drive it back as a complete unit. When you look at ClinChecks and you see how they typically show class two correction, you know, a lot of times what they will show is a bodily, just a tooth being moved back distally along the arch, but not actually rotating and tipping like this appliance does. But regardless, this appliance is, is unique, and it does produce different results than just placing a straight stainless steel wire connecting the molar and the cuspid and wearing a class two elastic. And it, and it makes that difference because of the ball and socket design where it puts the center of rotation back at the molar rather than being in the middle of that segment between the cuspid and the molar. What we would probably and want to see and what we do see when, when you use this type of appliance is demonstrated in the left screen. You see a small amount of molar rotation. It's usually somewhere, I would say, between three and seven degrees. It's not a tremendous amount of molar rotation, but it certainly is measurable and distal movement of the segment from the cuspid back to the molars. And on the right-hand part of the screen, we see what I have typically found with this appliance, and that is the molar does tip back. You do get some, some movement of the molar going backwards that is a tipping movement around the center of rotation in the roots. In the cuspid, much less tipping. It's almost a parallel movement of that coming back. And you'll notice a very small vertical discrepancy, I think, in reality, you'll see more of a vertical discrepancy, and we'll look at that in some upcoming pictures. But this is the type of change we'd like to see. And, and the benefit of this is that you get a whole segment moving back from the cuspid through the molar and then even pushing the second molar back, whereas using other distalizing appliances, they typically focus on pushing the molars back. And once you get the molars back, then you have to stabilize those, reach up and grab the bicuspids and then the cuspids and bring them back. So the, the efficiency of this appliance is that you get two buccal segments moving all the way back. The possible effects of wearing this, we've looked at the positive benefits, which were shown in the last uh, pictorial diagrams. Looking at the possible other effects that we could see is simply the same effects that you would look at from a force system of looking at what the uh, elastics do to the dentition. And of course, you, it depends on what you use to hold in the lower arch. But what we would expect to see are these things, mandibular incisor proclination. In this case, the picture shows a lower lingual arch, which is what I typically use. So if you apply a force against the lower lingual arch, you should expect to see some of the lower incisors moving forward. We would also expect that we could see some mandibular molar extrusion and possibly some mesial tip. We would expect maxillary cuspid extrusion with distal tipping. And then, of course, the desired effect that we want to see is that the buccal segment distalizes with some molar tipping and possibly some intrusion with some distal rotation. This, of course, could lead to one other change that's not just a dental effect but also a skeletal effect, and that is the mandibular plane changing. So I had questions about all of these when I started using it, so one of the things that I did uh, is take a pan and assess on every patient at the beginning of treatment and also when they immediately quit using the distalizer so that we could measure what these effects were on the teeth and of the mandibular plane. 
these studies, uh, the look back at these patients are now being done at a couple of different universities are looking at them. One of them is at the University of Chicago where um, I sent off a group of these PANS and STEFs and they were analyzed by uh, residents there. And we have some selection criteria for those patients and those are demonstrated on your screen right now. It ended up being 36 patients met the selection criteria and distalizers were used bilaterally. What we have found at the end of looking at that study was that there were no skeletal changes. And the other changes that we noticed were largely in the lower incisor. So we saw changes that were significant for lower incisor proclination and bodily movement forward, lower incisor protrusion. In addition to that, the other significant thing that was found was that the maxillary upper incisor also reclined as a result of the uh, forces that were applied to the distalizer and then I guess through the periodontal ligaments were expressed on the upper incisors bringing those back. The other thing that was noted as significant was a reclining of the upper uh, cuspid. And so there's obviously a degree change there and we want to look at that very closely because if what we're ultimately seeing is only the upper cuspid tipping back where the root apex is moving forward, when you go back into any kind of appliances or aligners, you're going to have to recover that and you would probably lose a lot of anchorage gained if you had to recover that. So watching what the cuspid does and the alignment of the cuspid I think was very critical in seeing how effective this appliance was, was going to be once you move out of this appliance and into either aligners or fixed appliances. So the molar rotation that we see again is anywhere from say three to seven degrees. It's a pretty small amount of rotation, but yet it is something that we do see with the appliance. So certainly that's one part of the distalization. The other thing that we wanted to look at was the cuspid root alignment looking very closely. So if you look on this screen uh, in the upper arch, you'll see that we have end-to-end -end, end relationship with the molars and the cuspid relationship is slightly worse than end-on on the right and kind of about end-on on the left and following the distalizer, we've got both of the molars driven back to beyond class one molar relationship and both of the cuspids pretty solidly in to the correct class one relationship. And when you look at the pan and you take a look very closely and you see what's happened, if we see the root tip moving mesially on the cuspid, all that means is when we go into fixed appliances is that's going to have to be driven back and that's going to cost us some anchorage loss. So what we want to see is how upright do we keep that cuspid moving back. And I think if you look very closely and if you see what I believe I'm seeing when I look at it is we see an enlarged PDL all the way up the mesial surface of the cuspid when you look at these. So that means we're not having as much of a tipping back of that cuspid as it moves back, but we're having more of a bodily movement of the cuspid as it goes back. This is what makes it ideal to follow up treatment with aligners because uh, the strength of aligners or one of the difficulties for them to do has been get the rest of the cuspid root distalization. Only as of November last year, we now have specific attachments that will do that. So we can gain a very uh, small amount of distal root tip using the current optimized attachments. But you can see from the positioning of the root, we don't have to gain hardly any at all because the cuspid is maintained very upright as it moves back. So what I want you to do is as we look at each pan as we go through different types of cases, uh, always look at the cuspid and look at the root positioning. 
and understand that if you were following up with aligners following the use of this, you're not going to be asking the aligners to do a lot of root movement. In fact, you're going to be asking the aligners to do very little root movement, but essentially holding the AP position and possibly intruding the cuspid is going to be what, what needs to be done. But it's not going to be a situation where you're having to go in and, and tip the cuspid root back significantly with the aligner. So that's very beneficial. So here's another case where we look at cuspid root alignment um, and show you a case where the cuspid has moved fairly significantly by looking at the photos, especially on the right-hand side of your screen. We've had a pretty significant movement of the cuspid back. We want to take a look very closely and say, well, what does the root position look like? Well, again, when you look at the um, patient's left on our right-hand side as we're looking at the screen, you can see that that whole segment is driven back and all of the roots have maintained and, and are fairly upright. So there's not a significant amount of tipping that goes back with this that you have to recover once you go into the aligners. So again, you've done the most difficult part of your treatment first, You've got a whole segment moved back to class one relationship. Now, if you move into aligner treatment, what's, what you'll be asking the aligners to do is what they do very well, is just a class one spacing case at this point. So the force levels that we're looking at for the aligners are this. Um, what's recommended by Dr. Carrier is a very heavy elastic, quarter inch, six and a half ounce. And he says that there should be a difference whether the patient is high angle or low angle, and that is the high angle patient's angle cases, he wears the elastic 14 hours a day. I'm not uh, of the opinion that that really makes a significant difference uh, for two reasons. First reason is that it's a pretty low subset of patients that we would have that are really high angle patients that we're going to be distalizing in. It's typically not the preferred treatment, so it's kind of a, a low subset of patients that we would be doing that in the first place. And the second is, cumulatively, we need to move the teeth back, so I don't think uh, changing the forces and, and varying them by taking the elastics on and off is going to make a significant difference. Ultimately, we need a, a certain amount of force delivered to the teeth that move them back into the position that we're looking for. So it's not a recommendation that I've followed is to wear part-time elastics. I have the patients wear elastics full-time uh, anytime I elect to use this appliance. The anchorage considerations on the bottom can vary from patient to patient. What I use typically is a fixed lingual arch, lower lingual arch, and I call that either maximum anchorage or minimum anchorage. Maximum anchorage is what I consider when we're able to apply, add an arm from the lingual arch to either going distally to the occlusal surface of the second molar or moving something mesially to the occlusal surface of the lower first bicuspid so that I can gain anchorage from at least two other teeth in the arch. If I'm not able to use anything but a lower lingual arch cemented to the lower first molars, then I would consider that to be a minimum anchorage fixed lingual arch. Um, other options and things that are used are TADs. If you're interested in putting a TAD in so that you have absolute anchorage, um, that would be the mechanism to go by. It's not something that I choose to do, but it certainly has been done. Um, this is an example of the uh, maximum anchorage fixed lingual arch where the extension arm off the, off the lingual surface goes along the lingual of the lower second molar, then goes up occlusally onto the occlusal surface of the second molar. That's bonded into place, so it serves two effects. Not only does it add additional anchorage tooth to the system, but it also helps open the bite by providing a bite opening effect uh, with the 
glue on the, on the occlusal surface of the lower second molars. When we have a maximum anchorage fixed lingual arch, um, what, we want to, what we would hope to see is um, less tipping of the lower incisors. That's what we're, one of the things we're trying to prevent by incorporating more anchorage teeth. Less mesial tipping of the lower first molar, less effect of the lower lingual arch on the lower incisors. Um, when we look cephalometrically at the effect on the lower incisor in this particular case, we see between T1 and T2 that the lower incisor actually shows that the lower incisor reduced its proclination. That's got to be tracing error, which is why I put an asterisk next, next to that, when in reality there was probably very little effect, uh, which is good. That's what we would hope to see by adding additional anchorage. By the time the case is finished, we even reduce the uh, angulation of the lower incisor further. Um, my position on this appliance is I certainly expect that the lower incisor is going to percline some. And I think where the lower incisor ends up ultimately in treatment is more a function of the prescription of the appliance that you use after you take the distalizer out, whether it be aligners or braces, where that lower incisor ends up can certainly be controlled with either of those ways. You can do it in your ClinCheck or you can do it by the prescription you use. In fixed cases, I use a negative six uh, angulation on the lower incisor and I finish in full-size arch wires and an 018 slot. So it's not unusual for me to see on most of my cases that if the lower incisor proclines during use of the carrier distalizer, I can immediately reverse that and upright that with the fixed appliances. We can also do the same thing with aligners. You just set up your ClinCheck so that you change the angulation of those and it certainly is something that can be done. So looking at the minimum anchorage, the, the one thing that we do know is that we can see the lower incisor tip forward. and Here's an example of how that can be recovered. So you have a minimum uh, anchorage, lower lingual arch. We have the lower incisor go out roughly about four degrees there. And then through either the fixed appliances or the aligners, we upright that another degree coming back. So again, it, it's not a, a totally bad effect by having the lower incisor move forward because it can be recovered. So we're going to look at what kind of patients you could use. I need to say, I'm going to back up one other thing and say in terms of uh, other options of wearing on the lower arch, something that I don't do but certainly can be done is to use an Essex-type appliance and wear class two elastics for that. I think there's a number of clinicians that do that. I don't choose to do that because it gives the patient one more thing that they have to do to be able to comply with your treatment, and that is they have to remember to wear their Essex-type appliance and wear the elastics, too. I would rather just give them one job to do, and that's wear their elastics. What we're going to move on to next is looking at uh, what I consider would be treatment profiles of patients that you would consider using this type of appliance on. And the first one is comparing, say, a low-angle patient to a high-angle patient. And I think without a doubt, the number one patient that you would try to use this on would be a low-angle, deep overbite-type patient you get two really good benefits from wearing the distalizer when you do this. You get the AP correction, but you also get a significant reduction in the overbite. So as the lower incisors procline a little bit and as the upper anterior teeth uh, move back and sometimes get spaces, as you see here, um, almost always the other effect that you see with this is going to be that the overbite is reduced. So again, one of the more difficult things you 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 can find using aligners in deep overbite cases is how much overbite you can reduce. If you can turn something from 
100% overbite and just through wearing this appliance you're dealing with a 50% overbite or less, you've already done another thing that, that will help your overall treatment outcome in terms of the overbite correction. So here's this patient, another patient, low angle deep overbite case uh, where after the distalizer has been removed, we see stacing between the upper anterior teeth. Lower incisor, again, the overbite's reduced probably as a function of the lower anterior teeth proclining forward. So we had about an eight degree change there. Then as we move in through our fixed appliances or our aligners, we come back and we look and we've reduced significantly the amount of proclination there. So when we look at what stage of the dentition we should be in, uh, we have the option of, of starting this clearly in the full permanent dentition, but a lot of patients show up in our practice in the uh, late, mixed in, late mixed dentition and the early mixed dentition. Um, what you're seeing here on the screen is my preference, which is to generally wait until the full permanent dentition, and then uh, sometimes we will start in the late mix only when the, when the second primary molars need to erupt. Let's take a look at one of those. Here's the late mixed dentition, and of course the question that I would ask when you're using this, is there going to be any negative effect on the further eruption of the upper second bicuspid because of this? And I have never seen that be the case. So the distalizer is removed here after four and a half and five months, and we can see on the pan that the second bicuspid still have a pretty significant uh, amount of eruption that needs to be done before they show up and come through. And we also see that the cuspid movement back has been very, very much bodily and not tipped back. When we look at the effect on the lower incisor, again, we have a slight proclination of the lower incisor. But with time, the upper second primary molars are lost and the, they are allowed to erupt into position and there's no effect on, on the eruption of those teeth. So I've, I've used these very successfully in the late mixed dentition and certainly don't have a problem with it. I don't like delays of going from the phase one of treatment with the distalizer right into phase two. So again, I tend to prefer to wait until the second bicuspids are in, but it certainly doesn't prevent you from using it at an earlier time. One of the real advantages when you talk about partially erupted teeth or maybe not a fully erupted dentition, and one of, the, one of the types of cases that ultimately makes a lot of sense to use this appliance are your um, partially erupted cuspids, which don't have room to come into the arch. Um, a lot of times that's because of some mesial drift of the upper posterior teeth along with some reclining of the upper anterior teeth. But either way, the cuspids are not coming in, into the arch because they don't have space to do it. When you use a bicuspid distalizer, which attaches to the bicuspids instead of the cuspids, it's just a shorter segment and it attaches very easily, um, you create, you correct, again, two to three problems all at once at the very start of treatment. You create space for the cuspids to come in. You move the posterior segments to a solid class one relationship. And, um, you decrease some of the overbite. So those three things are all very effective for using this appliance as a starting appliance. If you do this, you have to go to a smaller elastic that is much stronger. So it has to be a, a, a very small elastic and uh, some of the kids have had a little bit of trouble fitting these very small heavy elastics on, but with time they learn how to do it very easily. 
so that hasn't been something that's been uh, difficult for them to do. It just depends on their manual dexterity. Another thing that these are good for is you can take care of some very early uh, upper arch asymmetries. I like using the distalizer to treat upper arch asymmetries. I think it does a very good job of correcting those. And when we do that, yeah, we do it by having the patient wear the elastics continue full time on the side that needs more correction and move them to night only on the side that gains early correction um, because it doesn't need as much distalization. But this has been a really good appliance for uh, upper arch asymmetries. And you can see all the space we created to let those cuspids come in. So again, over three and a half, four months period of time, you've taken care of three pretty significant things by using this appliance. So um, I really like it in these particular types of cases. And what happens to the cuspids, you can see here that the cuspids uh, erupt on into position. And again, the PDL, even on these, is widened on the anterior, on the medial side of those teeth. The effect on the lower incisor, again, tipping forward, which reduces the overbite. <coughs> and of course, here we are with the treatment completed. Well, just like um, where we, on the previous case, where we used the bicuspid distalizer, bilaterally if you have one side that is solid class one, uh, the question has been posed, can you use it unilaterally and does it create a cant in the upper arch? Uh, that would be something that would have to be dealt with later. The answer to that is uh, I have not seen that happen yet. I certainly use these unilaterally to correct uh, unilateral uh, problems as far as the molar relationship and custard relationship and I haven't seen these uh, have any effect on the cant in the upper arch. So the unilateral distalizers, I think, is another um, very effective way for to correct upper arch asymmetries. And again, if you look at the cuspid on the lower left hand, on the lower pan, on the patient's left hand side, our right hand side, you can see a widened PDL go all the way up the length of that cuspid root. So what about age in these patients? I think I think we do need to consider whether or not these the age of the patients have growth. Uh, at all. I do not favor wearing these on adults. It hasn't proven to be uh, stable is the biggest problem. I have been able to get some of the class 2 correction, but it certainly doesn't work the same way it works in, in young growing individuals. Uh, what I've found when I've used this on adults and then I've transitioned to aligners or fixed appliances is that very slowly and steadily I've lost uh, some of the AP correction, if not all of the AP correction during the subsequent treatment. So for me, I'm, I'm typically looking for these patients to be growing patients. And certainly in terms of maturity and compliance, we have to evaluate some of these younger patients to really decide is this something they're going to do because it, it is driven by the patient being able to wear these aligners or, or not wear the aligners, not wear the elastics. Um, those kind of things are, are what we're looking for. So in wrapping up this particular appliance, I like it because it's very effective. It does get the, the correction that we need. Um, it does it in a very efficient amount of time. Typically, I have these patients, once I put the appliance in, I have them come back in three six-week intervals. So they'll come back, we'll cement the appliance in the lingual arch. We'll see them back six weeks later. At that point, what we expect to see is, a, is that floss doesn't catch between the upper cuspid and lateral. We continue and see them at a second six-week visit where we expect to see a visible space between the cuspid and lateral. 
and then they come back after having worn the appliance for their third six-week interval. And at that point, what we expect to see is full correction. So typical use is four and a half months with this appliance, and what I've found is that at the end of four and a half months, if we don't have the correction we need, either the patient's not wearing their elastics or we're not going to get any more correction. So I usually have not gone beyond the three six-week visit interval and continue using this appliance. But I've certainly found in many cases by the second six weeks, I'm very tempted to quit using the appliance. But usually I go ahead and go the third six weeks so that um, I can get overcorrection if possible in some of these cases. It's certainly a better position to be in. So very effective, very efficient. Aesthetic, um, I don't think it's an appliance that's very ugly as is, but even now they've come out with a clear version of this that the arm from the molar that extends on up to the cuspid and is bonded to the cuspid tooth is now made out of a uh, plastic that's very clear, seems to be very durable and holding up, so there is even an, a more aesthetic option for those that might want something that really doesn't show any more than it has to. In terms of easy to use, I like it because our uh, technicians in our office can generally place, measure and place these. They measure them on uh, pretreatment models, typically in our practice, but if pretreatment study models aren't available, there is a measuring guide that, you can, that comes with the appliance itself. So you can in the mouth measure the size that you need to do and you can make minor changes in the, in the angulation where the pad sits on the cuspid so that it fits more securely. And that's done by the technician's chair side. They can do that if it's not done pre on pretreatment models. Um, the other thing is, is technicians can also bond this into place. Um, it, it typically sits in very easily and it's something that they can visually see and, and put it in place where it needs to go. The one, there's two tips in terms of bonding that I'd like to talk about. One of them is materials. We use a hybrid composite material, much like the attachment material um, that is used on our Invisalign cases for uh, clear attachments. We use um, 3M Filtech Z250, um, and then we save the hybrid material that we use for our attachments because it's translucent for, for attachments, but we use a very similar product and bond it uh, with a hybrid composite. The idea is, is that we've got increased bond strength on that, if you do that, you kind of we do it as a sandwich, what I call a sandwich technique. We sandblast the base of this appliance. We clean and dry that. We put a layer of the unfilled resin or sealant on the base of the brackets. We put we clean and etch the teeth and put unfilled resin sealant on the tooth itself. And then we put the hybrid composite material between the two and 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 push it onto the tooth that way. The other thing that needs to be done when you cement this appliance is you need to take a scaler and on the pad on the molar, and as we're looking on the screen, it would be the, the middle picture on the left-hand side, on that pad where it's flat coming out anteriorly, when you cement that in place, you need to take your scaler and push on that pad so that you, you gain as much rotation correction as you can as the patient wears the appliance. If you cement this in place, and, you, and all of the freedom of, of buccal lingual rotation is removed as you cement the appliance, then you won't get the rotation that you need. So try to position it um, a little bit mesially of center on the tooth. If you have a choice between the center and possibly moving forward a little bit, I would go forward instead of choosing a, a bigger, design, bigger length and, and placing it more distally on the molar. 
but when your technicians do that, make sure they take a scaler and press on that flat surface of the pad so that they activate the rotation as much as possible. But it is very easy to use. That means for a start appointment for a doctor, you know, my responsibility is to come over and uh, cement the lower lingual arch and just make sure that the appliance is bonded well. And when you see that, um, then you know that, that it's ready to go. Um, the other advantage of this is that you get to evaluate com patient compliance very early on in treatment, and, which I think is invaluable. If you have someone who won't wear elastics and gain the class 2 correction that they need very early on in treatment, chances are they're not going to do much for you at any other point in treatment. And we've had a few of those where, you know, while they tell us that they'll wear the elastics, you know, you put the appliance in and you just come in and you see no movement, no movement, no movement. Well, that tells you all you need to know about the remainder of the treatment. You need to switch to a non-compliance mode. So anyway, I think there are great advantages to using this appliance for these type of class two. So let's look at a couple of patients. Um, this is a patient that is a 15-year-old female, comes into the practice, not interested in wearing braces at this time. And certainly when you look at her right and left buckle segments, the left side isn't a very significant class two at all. It's very much class one. The right side is end to end. Cuspid relationship is a little beyond end to end. And again, I think it's not wrong at all, and certainly many people would take this type of initial presentation and go in and start with aligners and wear class two elastics. I, I think that's completely acceptable, um, but you're depending on the patient doing both of those things for a good result. What I like to do is uh, assess where the problems are and decide you know, what's the most efficient and effective way to do it. And when I looked at this and seeing an upper arch asymmetry, um, I want to use the distalizing appliance to do that so that we can not only get the class one correction, but we can also get reduction in the overbite, and we can also create some space around the upper anterior teeth, which are crowded. And the more real estate that the aligners have the ability to capture with the plastic material, the better we're going to control those teeth. Then we'll move into Invisalign and let it do the things that it does well. Take a minor spacing or minor crowding class one case and just wear through the series of aligners. So when the distalizer is completed, we see this. We see a super correction on the left side. We see a full correction to class one on the right side in the, in the molar relationship. Um, at this point, we've got spacing between the, around the upper lateral incisors, which are always a, a difficult tooth to control and we've had a uh, reduction in the overbite. So three really good things that we've gained from wearing the distalizer first. And at this point, I look in terms of efficiency, and I say, okay, I've gained this much correction. She did it in two six-week periods, which would be six aligners, and I ask myself, you know, can I get this amount of correction with six aligners? And the answer is no. Um, so again, I think from an efficiency standpoint, this is the most efficient way, not the only way, but certainly the most efficient way that I can get to that class one platform right away. To make your transition to aligners, once you've worn this, I remove the appliances and clean the teeth. We do make a PVS impression or a scan um, at the moment that we, that we clean the teeth right then and there. If you did an initial PVS, we, we make an in-house ethics and we make a pour, an initial pour of the PVS. As long as you're using a good quality PVS material that has a high tear strength on the light body, you can do this. If you're using a very cheap light body material, when you pull the stone model out of the PVS, a lot of times it will tear, and then you might have to remake your impression for Invisalign. Um, I was using a, a 3M product uh, 
when I was doing PBS impressions, it had very high tear strength. It wasn't a problem taking an impression, pouring up a stone model, and then cleaning up the impression and sending it off to Invisalign to use to be scanned with. And that's what was done in this particular patient. We make upper and lower Essex-type appliances. We give the patients those and have them wear them at night only. And the one caveat is we tell them they must bring those to the visit where they get their first aligner because I'll know immediately if the aligners don't fit, is it a problem with the aligners or is it a problem that the patient didn't wear their clear uh, appliances. And we don't do it as a trick. We tell the patients right then and there. We say, look, here's why we want you to bring them. You know, we're, you, This is where your teeth should fit and this is where your first aligner is going to start. So I need to see that this is fitting. So. If you do this, certainly tell the patients what's expected of them so that they know exactly why it's important. Well, when you look at the ClinCheck play for this particular patient, you see uh, nothing that's really earth-shattering. This is a class one minor crowding case on the lower and a class one you know, minor crowding with minor spacing in the anterior on the upper. Uh, not a lot of significant movement, just arch form correction in the upper and lower arches. She did not wear any class two elastics with this, but we just essentially have her go through and wear a series of aligners. So here we were at uh, Progress Aligner 9. We were wearing the aligners on two-week intervals, and I was delivering three aligners at a time at this time. This is aligner 20. We progress on. Here we are at aligner 30. So this is at the end of the first set of aligners. You can see that we still have some uh, minor things that we need to touch up. So there's uh, a minor... Uh, Crowding in the lower anterior, there's a couple of marginal ridge issues, things that we need to look at. And then this is her final after case refinement. So after case refinement, we end up here. Class one is corrected, arches are leveled, corrections are all corrected. We finish with a bonded lower lingual three to three and an upper full coverage Essex type appliance. So when we come out of the distalizer and go into the aligners, what you may see is some extrusion of the upper second molar because of the tipping of the upper molars as the class one is uh, corrected. That's something that the aligners handle very easily. These vertical problems in fixed appliances, this is something that's a little more difficult. Typically, we don't like to see that when we're in fixed appliances and the mechanics are somewhat, somewhat hard. But when you're using aligners, intruding upper second molars is very easy. That's why we had large attachments on the upper first molars, and then having the patient just even bite or squeeze into the aligners will intrude those uh, upper second molars right into position to level the marginal ridges. Even things like the marginal ridges on the lower left second bicuspid and lower first molar, if you put the right attachments on the teeth and have your technician level the marginal ridges, you can see that that's easily accomplished with the aligners. So the summary on this patient was uh, six visits, 17 weeks with the auxiliary treatment. We had 12 visits with the aligners. And at this time, I was delivering aligners on a two-week schedule, so 30 aligners with 60 weeks and uh, 12 visits. Not the most efficient way to deliver aligners. I think you can certainly deliver more than three aligners at a time, and uh, certainly I'm doing that now. In refinement aligners, I delivered eight aligners. I changed those weekly, and we did that over three visits. So the total treatment time was 26 months and 21 visits. So I would call this a little bit outdated in terms of practice efficiency and what we're doing. So I want to give you another example of something that's more uh, what we're doing in our practice today in terms of number of patient visits into the practice. 
So this is another teen patient who presents with a uh, unilateral class two. And we elect to use the distalizer to gain the class one correction. So if you look on the right-hand side of your screen, you can see we've gone from an end-on cuspid relationship to a solid class one molar relationship on the right-hand side. We did use a distalizer on the left-hand side, but I discontinued the elastics after the first six weeks because it was corrected and we had already gotten the space between uh, the upper right lateral and central. Also take a look at the center picture and you'll notice that we've had pretty good overbite reduction going from say about a 70% overbite to about a 40% overbite, something that you'll see with this. So we go through a series of aligners and case refinement and we end up with this. What's most telling about this is the efficiency. So we started with the initial presentation, then this is where we were when we were through wearing the carrier distalizer on the right, so that was done in four months. And then we wear a series of aligners and then send off and do case refinements, get a group of aligners that we wear there, and we get to the point that we're finished in roughly about 16 months later from the starting time. There's where we finished. I often look at this number and uh, it's the number that I use to compare how, how productive we are in treatment. So it's production per patient visit. And what we do is we take the total treatment fee, we subtract what it costs to use the appliances, so the cost of the aligners and the cost of the distalizer and impressions. The number that's left, we divide by the total number of visits. So in this particular patient, including the distalizer, uh, 13 total visits. So the production per patient visit was just short of $300 per patient visit. That's very productive in our practice. So from the efficiency standpoint, I like that. From the effectiveness standpoint, um, kind of let the results speak for themselves in that. Um, so that one you say may have been a little bit easy. Let's look at one that was just a little more difficult. So this is a patient that is currently in treatment. We're just about finished with her. So um, last summer we, we saw this where we're end on slightly class two on the right cuspid relationship, the picture on your lower left-hand side. The left-hand side certainly looks good. So we need a unilateral distalizer. I probably wore this. In fact, not probably. I wore bilateral distalizers with uh, extended wear on the right-hand side. In this particular instance, we had an emergency visit, and because she's less of a growing patient, this is a 17-year-old female, I extended her aligners, uh, her wearing the elastics, one more time, so we did one additional six-week visit, so we went from four and a half to six months on her uh, distalizer, and the plan is to transition her into aligners. So we did, uh, this is her initial set of aligners, 25 upper aligners, 24 lower aligners. You can tell how we're intruding the cuspid that was extruded by wearing the appliance. We still have a small surgical shift on this to get the class two correction fully corrected, so I did have her continue to wear class two elastics. We were changing aligners weekly, eight aligners at a time. So this is where she presented at case refinement. Teeth are uh, much better aligned, leveling is looking pretty good. We've still got some touch-up things to do. That phase of treatment to deliver those aligners was four total office visits. We're now into case refinements where we had uh, 16, an additional 16 aligners, and that will be two office visits. Here's the refinement clincheck, or I'm sorry, the uh, pan 
that was submitted with the with the case refinement clean check. So we're going to have 16 upper and 16 lower aligners. This is the clean check that was accepted. We see a long vertical attachment on the upper right cuspid because we're trying to get some distal root tip, uh, some just very final uh, positioning on that. The amount that we got wasn't enough to get the root control attachment, so I went ahead and added a long vertical attachment so I can get that. And then again, we'll have three office visits with that. So on a case that's a little more difficult, our production is uh, 5680, subtract the appliance cost, net production, and she's going to be treated in 14 office visits total. And again, that covers us right around uh, $280, $277 of production. When we look at the, the sequence of the treatment as it goes along, this is initial. Then we go to post-distalizer. This is during the initial phase of aligner wear. This is the photos at case refinement. And then we'll have finals probably in another few weeks here. And then we've got one more to show you what's the comparison to fixed appliances. So if you were saying, okay, what's the comparison in cost to fixed appliances? Well, here's one that is fairly typical. So we've got an end-on-molar relationship, kind of a high class two cuspid relationship. We stop wearing the distalizer at the end of two six-week periods. Move on into fixed appliances. Finished up with a little bit of class to elastics. This is where we finished up with her. So on this one, carrier was four visits. Fixed appliances were 14 visits. Here's something you see that you don't have much with uh, aligner patients, emergencies and canceled visits. So that's broken braces, poking wire, something else happened. Uh, the benefit of aligners is we see very little of that, almost no emergencies, almost no canceled appointments because people understand they've got to come in and see you to get more aligners. So again, comparing this to fixed appliances, you take you, you remove the cost of the carrier distalizer, the fixed appliances and the wires, and you divide it by the total number of visits. We come out with something that's roughly very similar in terms of uh, what, it, what we produced in our office per patient visit. So when I look at clear aligner treatment, um, we focus on what aligners do best, and that is small amounts of changes. I will certainly do some patients, uh, a number of patients, that I'll wear class to elastic to the aligners for the small amounts of changes. But that second group of patients that come in where I have even, you know, end-on relationship, end-on cuspids, and I want to very quickly get back to class one, I don't have questions about those anymore. Those go straight into the carrier distalizer, and then we transition those right into their aligners. And you can see that it's not only uh, very effective, but also very efficient and very productive for our office. So with that, I'd like to say uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Colville. Great presentation. Uh, we really enjoyed it. And we look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.